This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. What do you think about working with the Lampoon? Like so many people have gone on to like The Simpsons and SNL and Curb Your Enthusiasm. What do you think it is about that atmosphere and work ethic that prepares you for the writer's room for, you know, these iconic shows? I would not use the words work ethic. Okay. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Use the words of your choice. (laughs) Uh, I would say you have a lot of really smart people who really value comedy. So you're around other people who teach you really. And I learned from the people there. Plus I think surviving that difficult comp process where you are severely criticized and you keep trying and you keep coming back with more. If anything, I think that is a valuable thing to learn, though painful. Yes, that is the voice of Michael Small, who you might have gathered worked for the iconic humor magazine, The Harvard Lampoon, which is one of the oldest humor magazines in the world. And you've tuned into another episode of Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy. I am Harmon Leon. Hello. And today we're going to do a deep dive into Michael's history with the Harvard Lampoon. The alumni include writers for The Simpsons, Late Night with David Letterman, Seinfeld, Friends, The Office, 30 Rock, Parks and Recreation. It's not like I'm just reading this off a page or something. And includes such notable icons in comedy such as Conan O'Brien, Andy Borowitz, B.J. Novak, Greg Daniels, actor Fred Herman Munster Gwynn. Yes, they were all on staff at the Harvard Lampoon. Michael Small, our guest today, went on to be a celebrity journalist for People Magazine, Entertainment Weekly. He worked for MSNBC, Rolling Stone. And you can find him on his own podcast, I Couldn't Throw It Out. Be sure to check that out. But before we jump into the episode, as always, take some time to like, subscribe, and even leave a dumb comment about Comedy History 101 wherever you get your podcasts. A few quick plugs. On Thursday, October 19th, 7 p.m. at Young Ethel's in Brooklyn, I will be presenting my show, That 80s Improv Challenge. Yes, three teams compete by creating scenes inspired by obscure videos from the 1980s. That sounds fun. Also on November 12th, 7 p.m., at the Pit, the People's Improv Theater, I will be presenting my show, AI versus Human Roast Battle. Yes, come out and see a machine learning AI take on a human comedian in a roast battle of tomorrow. And you can find out about all these shows at my website, harmonleon.com, or on Twitter or Instagram at harmonleon. And now, without further ado, Comedy History 101. Michael Small. Hello, Arvin. How are you? I'm good. 
Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to do this. I always just think, just jump back right in and make it seem like a natural conversation. Oh, okay. Just <laughs> two friends talking about the Harvard Lampoon. <laughs> that's okay. how I want to come across. <laughs> All right. Well, that's what you're. That's what you're going to get. So then, I want to make clear that I was on the Harvard Lampoon for a year, and I had other friends who were on it for more like four years. And I did not have a title when I was on The Lampoon. I was just one of many editors. What did you know of The Harvard Lampoon before you joined the staff? Part of the reason why I wanted to go to Harvard was because of The Harvard Lampoon. I really, really cared a lot about comedy and humor. And and when I saw that this was a place that had a comedy humor magazine, it was very appealing to me, of course. That didn't necessarily mean I'd get into Harvard, <laughs> but it was something that made me more interested in that as compared to other schools. Because that, you know, I guess Yale has one, but as a member of the Lampoon, I am required to say that whatever Yale has is much worse. And, and just backing up a bit, what was like growing up, what was like your love of comedy? What was in comedy that really, you know, brought you to humor? Co-host of my podcast, Sally Libby became my writing partner around ninth grade. And I think my life changed with a phone call to Sally Libby because we had known each other since fifth grade and had no interest in each other. She was always sitting in the back of the room, passing notes and being a, a very naughty little girl. And I was in the front being a very good boy, raising my hand all the time and answering all the questions. And we had a phone call in ninth grade and she made me laugh so hard. I never understood that anyone could be that funny and that anyone would laugh at the same things I laughed at. We used to think uh, that commercials were very funny and we thought we were hysterically funny as we parodied those commercials. We have been told by all of our family members that we were not as funny as we thought we were. Uh, nobody, nobody laughed at us as much as we did, but we used to write doggerel poems to each other all day long, pass them back and forth when we passed in the hallway and the poems were like commenting on other people that we knew. And I, of course I have saved these poems and I have them in boxes in our attic because I save all things that I consider to be treasures. And that's mm -hmm. how I created my podcast. And so she was just so funny and she made me feel funny. And we became sort of a duo in high school and we worked on the literary magazine together and we made ourselves laugh all the time. And that's why I really wanted to go to a place where um, comedy had some value. I'll also say that I'm also doing an episode of my podcast about my favorite movie of all time, which we watched in high school, which I watched in high school. I thought Sally had seen it and she had never seen it. And it's called The Tiger Makes Out and it stars Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson. And he's a disgruntled mailman who wants to take out his anger at the world by kidnapping a beautiful woman. And by mistake, he kidnaps a suburban housewife, a suburban homemaker who has come into the city to get her baccalaureate degree and they are a perfect match for each other. And that movie made me laugh so hard. And 
that really was a turning point for me that I wanted to create things like that. Were you reading copies of the Harvard Lampoon? Like, where would people find it? Was it just like on newsstands or just, just on campus? I didn't get a copy of the Harvard Lampoon till I was on campus. I have a bunch of copies that I saved and I have them here to show you in case you are interested. Um, <laughs> I'll, and... I'll describe what I'm seeing. <laughs> I see paper. I see humor on paper. Right. The I see a yellow number. cover. I Each... see the excitement number. 75 cents was the copy uh, yeah. price. Each uh, issue had a theme. And we would get an assignment and a deadline to write for the theme. And everybody would turn in their stuff after, you know, like at 3 a.m. after whatever the deadline was. <laughs> and we would, I think, you know, we would all help with like putting it together. And I looked through and I actually found that I wrote some things that were kind of funny, which is a <laughs> shock because, <laughs> you know, in college, you don't expect things to be funny. I wrote one that was not funny that got in there. <laughs> but but I wrote this one that was a parody of this is a parody of holiday letters that people send. And I really am proud of this. <laughs> and what I'm seeing is I'm seeing some more words on paper. Yeah. Held up to the Zoom camera. I tell Just you some of the words. Painting, painting. Yeah, please read some. That'd be great. Well, first of all, the date is wrong. There, well, it's sent on February 14th, 1979. The idea being that they're always people are always sending their holiday letters too late. Uh, for those belated season greetings to all of our dear friends. For those of you who look forward eagerly to the prompt arrival of the Molting Family newsletter, many apologies. What with the adjustment of icy bootlaces, the tying on of furry hoods, and the gulping down of hot malt cider, I guess we didn't have time to think about you, our wonderful friends. But in answer to all those frantic, thoughtful inquiries, here goes. It's been a hearty, invigorating, and yet somehow tragic year for the Moulting family of Kitty Corner Bay. As all of you may have guessed, dear old Grandpa Moulting had to eat his Christmas pudding in a better world this year. The kindly, doddering man finally passed away after four days of solitary, of solitary confinement in his room with no food as a punishment for falling asleep in front of the TV again. <laughs> Let's just hope he learns to improve his attention span a little in some other world. Anyway, I enjoyed my my going on and on about we used to receive these holiday letters that were really funny, but not intentionally so. <laughs> and then how, how did you become a staff member? Was it something like you had to show like writing samples, like you're a freshman at Harvard? How do you how do you join the you know prestigious Harvard Lampoon? There's something called the comp process, which I wanted to do and did first thing freshman year. And you had to turn in, I think, six or eight pieces, humor pieces. Um, there, You were only allowed into a certain part of the castle to submit your writing. And you would, your the writing that you submitted would get thrown down on a floor. And there was sort of like all, all the entries were on the floor. And then people would just random members would randomly go and pick them up and look at them and write comments on the back. And then you would get to go in each week and see the comments that were written. And in my case, they were absolutely scathing. Like what would be an example? Like, was there no kid gloves involved? I mean, you're an impressionable freshman at Harvard and there's these upperclassmen and I could just, I would just know like very vulnerable. Problems. Oh yeah. 
for any kind of scathing criticism. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it would go from just, and I think people put their initials after their comments. You have to also remember that they were, that, that they were doing parodies of comments and a parody of a mean comment. Ah, so, or or it, so they say in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, in air quotes. So it, it would be super mean, but maybe it might have been a nice person who wrote that too. It's too bad because I just now remember that I have them somewhere and I could have actually dug out those comments, but it will be a very painful experience. But they they would say things, well, someone would just write not funny, but... What does that um, parody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be just direct. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess occasionally you would get a positive comment, but it was really challenging for me because I just didn't have any experience with with this kind of feedback at high school. Every single thing I wrote, people treated as if it was solid gold. And that is not how my <laughs> entries got treated. <laughs> I will say that my sense of humor was really rough and I, 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 it was very hit or miss. Let's put it that way. Like some things I could do were funny and some things I could do really were stupid. And, and I didn't know the difference between funny and stupid. Maybe I still don't. <laughs> You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Yeah. And so you, you submit like uh, the writing samples and was there like a hazing period or do they wake you up in the middle of the night and take like, first of all, explain the castle. What is the castle for people that might not know? I've seen photos of this iconic phallic shaped building. <laughs> <laughs> well, the building was was built in 1910 and it's a parody of a Flemish castle. And it has kind of a funny face on the front of it. And it's it's a little bit in there. It's kind of in the middle of two different streets. So it's a bit of a triangular property. And it used to have an old bookstore in the back. And it has two main floors. It was erected years after the Lampoon was started. The Lampoon was started in 1876. And they do claim to be the world's oldest continually published humor magazine but I have to say Wikipedia disagrees with them. <laughs> yeah, there. I looked it up. There was like a Swedish one and uh, another one. A Swiss one. Yeah, Swiss <laughs> one. But, you know, Swiss humor, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe the third oldest yeah. continually published funny humor man. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. And I guess, you know, the other contemporaries are like Punch in the UK. Yes, I'm pretty sure that Punch inspired the people who started the Lampoon. So... Anyway, the the building has a door that you would have to go and knock on, and then they would let you into this room where you could leave your stuff on the floor, and then you could come in a week later, and you could look and see what people had written on it. And I made a good friend freshman year who was who was also comping to get on, and he was extremely talented. His name's Max Pross, and he and my other friend Tom Gamble became writing partners for many decades, and they worked on a lot of shows they worked on. They started out for a season on Saturday Night Live, and then they worked on The Letterman Show. They worked on The Simpsons for many years. Tom just worked on the latest season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And Max and I comped the same year, and Max got on right away, which was a true justice. He is so smart, and he he was just so much more sophisticated than I was. And they really made a good call 
to let Max on and not to let me on yet. And I got on a couple of years later. I was so embarrassed by what I had done the first time that I didn't even try again to get on the Lampoon for two more years. What, what did you study? Were you journalism or English or? I studied the history and literature of France and England from 1750 to the present. Of course. <laughs> that that was my third choice in that. Uh, I know. Trinity of guesses. <laughs> and what's, what's actually interesting is the Lampoon has a wonderful library room with books that are all considered to be funny. And mm. you, you would be surprised uh, at book, what, well, when you read these books, you find a lot of humor in the history of literature. I would say the funniest book I ever read possibly is Don Quixote. I don't know if you've ever dipped into it, but that I laughed so hard when I read that book <laughs> that I was reading it before bed. And my wife, Cindy, said I couldn't read it before bed anymore because I was driving her crazy sitting there laughing while reading Don Quixote. <laughs> I mean, I, I dipped back in again into Don Quixote a couple of years ago. You know, it's a long book. It's about 500 pages. My take was, okay, I get it. He's crazy. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> I know. I know. That's like, that's a very simplistic uh, <laughs> um, some, summation of Don Quixote. But, you well, know, it's a great passages. But I think this is why my humor is of a secondary level because I can't get enough of that. Like the create the person whose vision of the world is mm. not in line with the real world. The humor that comes out of that is so funny to me that I can laugh for 600 pages of that. And then at the end, when he's forced to see the world the correct way, that made me, I started crying. <laughs> Yeah, because we're we're all Don Quixotes in one way or another, you know. We're all fighting our windmills. Yeah, we're 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 trying, and <laughs> yeah. and and there there are many books like that in the Lampoon Library. Where at first I looked and was like, "What is this doing here?" But there is a lot of great humor in great books. They're just not seen as humor books. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Swift. That's all the basis of say. All Saturday Night Live sketches comes from a modest proposal, <laughs> which is uh, the story of uh, not really a story is a proclamation that uh, poor people should eat their children. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I had a like satire in, in, in uh, college. And that was like one of our first books that we read. And it was like, they're trying to make the case that all Saturday Night Live sketches stem from a modest <laughs> proposal. That's which That's could be funny. true, you know. Everything, you know, has like its beginning point. Well, I mean, I mean, he modest he, proposal would be canceled in this yeah. game. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What do you mean, Eat children, <laughs> poor people? What? <laughs> he was, he was incredibly funny. And did did you ever read Tristram Shandy? Um, I Lawrence saw a Stern. movie based on it with Steve Coogan. Right. Um, yeah. The, the original book is so freaky modern mm -hmm. in terms of its humor that you cannot believe it was written in the 1700s, but it was. There, there, the entire book is a digression. I think Saturday, Saturday Night Live also came from that book. The entire yeah. book is a digression. It starts off when he's trying to tell his life story and the, the egg is coming down the fallopian tube and there's so many digressions that 
it's this huge book before the egg and the sperm meet. All right. I'm going to put, I just wrote this down to put on my yeah. reading list. But when you finally did make it into uh, the lampoon, how, how did they tell you? Was there like a kind of little bit of a hazing period or what, what, what happened that? I, I'm, I don't, I don't really love using the word hazing for it because mm -hmm. uh, we did have something called your, I was a fool spelled P H O O L. And there's something called fool's week when, which is the last uh, phase of, of, of applying to be on the lampoon. And it was in many ways, a really funny parody of hazing. And I had to go out and do some things in public. Like we staged a fake celebrity tennis tournament in Harvard square. And I had to be Mr. Rogers much as I don't look like Mr. Rogers, I think I found a cardigan. And I walked around with my tennis racket saying to everyone who went through Harvard Square, would you be my friend? Could you be my friend? Um, and people just had no idea how <laughs> this very conceptual prank was going to have any meaning at all in our current world. Uh, <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> And there was another extremely, this one is extremely obscure, but there was a very fancy arts society, I think called the Signet Club, and they had lunches. And I, there is also, is it a French, I'm just going to guess, 18th century painter Watteau. And, and so it would be very pretentious to be talking about Watteau during lunch. So I had to break into their lunch and crawl across the floor as if I was in a desert and dying of thirst. And instead of yelling, water, water, I yelled, Watteau, Watteau. <laughs> there you go. I like the, the humor that like only makes maybe seven people laugh. Yeah. Get the reference. Yeah. <laughs> and I, mean, most... I always throw those like Easter eggs on when I'm like doing live comedy. I don't know. Seven people might get it or four <laughs> but they'll really appreciate it, <laughs> you know? So sometimes you got to give those, like, they'll really appreciate it. And no one else will, no idea. <laughs> Most of the people just kept eating their lunch and looked at me like, you know, like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> but it was, it was weirdly fun to break out of the norms of what you do every day. We also learned all these dances to Motown songs. And we had to, at a certain, I think, early hour, they would play the Motown music outside the castle. And outside the castle, we had to do our dance steps. And I remember there was one very nice guy who was like our, our, our the general leading us in this, <laughs> this military action. And he was very tough during that. And I was scared of him then and then i found out that he was not that way at all 
was it Jim Downey who it was the legendary uh, SNL writer who was also at the Lampoon? <laughs> I Jim Downey had already graduated by the time I was on, I believe. So, or maybe he was, we overlapped by just a few months, but I did see him around the castle. I guess, I guess we overlapped by a semester maybe. And I did see him around the castle and that's one really talented and really nice person. Yeah. I, I, I listened to the David Spade, uh, data Carvey podcast, uh, fly on the wall and pretty much everyone talks about Jim Downey. <laughs> yeah. He, he was a wonderful guy who really understood I'm talking like he's he's in the present tense. He is a wonderful yeah, guy. He's still really he's yeah. They just had him on the humor. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I didn't get to know him very well. I don't even know if he'd remember who I was. But but he was around there when when I was there. I'm trying to use the phone. There was a sort of a tradition of people who had graduated coming back, and one of the people that one of my favorite people in that category was Lawrence O'Donnell, who who's now on MSNBC, he's an incredibly funny guy. People don't know that because he seems kind of serious on his show. He was incredibly funny. And he sort of, I don't know, like took me under his wing. And I remember there was some, you know, that it was just all silly. And remember, you have to remember all of this is, none of it is serious. So there were some people maybe from the Crimson who were taunting me in the street or something. And Lawrence O'Donnell ran out. And, and Crim to... Crimson is the daily paper at the Harvard, right? Yes. Okay, yes. gotcha. It's the yeah. non-humor paper. Yeah. The newspaper. <laughs> yeah. And and actually, I had probably as many or more friends on the Crimson than I did on the Lampoon. And some people were on both the Crimson and the Lampoon. But there was some kind of rivalry set up and some people were taunting me or whatever in a fake way and then in a fake but scary way Lawrence O'Donnell came out to defend me <laughs> yeah the... so now every time you go on M MSNBC you know it's like there's the guy <laughs> well I, you know I worked at MSNBC for years oh yeah that's right yeah and and Lawrence O'Donnell did many very generous things for me while I was there one is that he came down to the floor where the website people work because I worked on the website and he walked over to my desk and he put his arm around my neck and he dragged me through the room giving me a noogie that raised my status so high <laughs> yeah <laughs> he knew this is going to help me because people were like I mean people like uh, my desk people flocked to my desk afterwards how do you know Lawrence O'Donnell and I was like oh we're old friends and that noogie gave me a lot of juice there and you and got then, the o'donnell bump i think exactly they would call it. <laughs> and and then uh when my father at his 90th birthday lawrence o'donnell on the show said happy birthday to my father and made a nice comment and my parents watched msnbc seven hours a day and to be mentioned on that show was like greatest thing you could do for my father <laughs> nice and then when i left because uh, i retired a year ago lawrence made a video for my retirement goodbye you know really funny video and so 
He's definitely, he's just been so great to me over the years. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I was looking at the alumni list of uh, the Lampoon, and it was like some people you just wouldn't think of. William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Like, what were his humor pieces like? <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm going to frame a future rotund comedian <laughs> and, I... and almost make him sentenced to life in prison. Fatty Arbuckle I... reference. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> I. I think that he's, you know, to a certain extent, especially in those days, the Lampoon was a club and it was a really fun club to join. And I, I'm pretty sure he gave significant donations to keep that castle in shape. So that was a big contribution to the Lampoon. Yeah. Do you think another thing that really helped uh, Lampoon uh, will go 1969, a Henry Beard and a Doug Kenny as Lampoon staffers, they wrote the book Board of the Rings. That kind of kicked things off. And then they spun off into the National Lampoon. Did the, the Harvard Lampoon license their name to the National Lampoon? Is that how that worked? Or That's that's what I understood, is that they licensed it. And, um, and by the way, you asked me how I knew about the Lampoon before I went to college. It was Board of the Rings. I had Board of the Rings. And I had read Lord of the Rings and read Board of the Rings. And that hit the sweet spot for me. <laughs> yeah, the J.R.R. Token uh, parody. Exactly. But do you think? Do you think that was? You know, if you had a like, I think you could describe like the onions humor. You know, in a specific way, you could describe National Lampoon's humor in a specific way. Do you think if you had to like do a broad stroke of the Harvard Lampoon's humor, would you think it would be like uh, parodies? I think like in the 60s, they were doing like Mademoiselle parodies and then everyone started coming to them to do do a parody issue of us. Do you think that extended through through the years that you were there? Definitely. I think parodies would be the key word. And in fact, even that that little letter I wrote was a parody of holiday letters. And it's interesting. They parodied two places that I ended up working. I became the music columnist at Mademoiselle, which is also interesting side note is that my grandmother worked there too. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, what did she, was she an editor or writer? Or? I, I'm not exactly sure. She worked, she was a, a fashion person. She had, she had been working for a famous hat designer named Lily Dashay. And then she went to be a, she was a writer, I guess, at Mademoiselle um, for a while when she was young. And then many years later, in fact, after she had died, I became the music writer, the music columnist at Mademoiselle for several years. So so I went to the place that the Lampoon had parodied. And also the Lampoon did a parody of People magazine, which had Brooke Shields on the cover holding a giant dead fish. And I then did a story for People magazine. What happened is that in 1981 is when that parody came out and they invited Brooke to come to a dinner at the Lampoon. And I went back for that because I was working at People magazine and I had worked on the Lampoon. So I went back for that party. And in 1985, I think, people decided to do a experiment with a first person column because, you know, you never saw first person things in People magazine. And so I think I kicked off this first person column by doing a story about going to this party at the Lampoon when Brooke Shields was there and trying to impress Brooke Shields. And the running joke was that I was so short and she was wearing this this dress that had a big ruffle below her chin and that she 
couldn't see me below the ruffle. When I went to ask her to dance, she was barely aware that I was there. And they did a cartoon of me dancing with Brooke, which I have now have a oh, nice. giant, giant version of right here, uh, which I saved. And you can see there's a picture of Brooke with oh, me man. being this little person dancing at her feet. That's great. <laughs> and, oh, man. And, Excellent. And uh, <laughs> the other running joke of the piece was that I didn't know what to say to her. And she wasn't, she was, ex she is an extremely smart person. But, you know, with all these guys coming at her at the Lampoon, what was she going to say to everybody? So she didn't have a lot to say to me. So to fill the silence, I kept telling her and her mother and everyone how much I loved the movie Endless Love. <laughs> and in the end, that was my Brooke Shields encounter. And then the reason why I wrote that story is because in 1985, when I was covering parties for People magazine, I ran into Brooke Shields at a party. And I said to her, you know, I danced with you at the Harvard Lampoon when you did that, when that party happened. And she looked at me like, um, oh, um, I don't remember it all, but I'm going to be really polite. Excuse me. What do you think about working with the Lampoon? Like so many people have gone on to like The Simpsons and SNL and Curb Your Enthusiasm. What do you think it is about that atmosphere and work ethic? that prepares you for the writer's room for, you know, these iconic shows. I would not use the words work ethic. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> use the words of your choice. <laughs> uh, I would say you have a lot of really smart people who really value comedy. Many of them, like uh, I, when I got on, I got on, I'm pretty sure with Mike Reese, uh, was one by, by the way, like Mike Reese was at our comedy show last month. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I recognized him right away because he was also in the National Lampoon documentary. I recognize him by his watch. He always <laughs> wears like funny watches. And I go, because uh, someone was doing crowd rap with his wife and his wife goes, I'm married to a comedian. They go, who? And they go, this guy. And I go, oh, that's the guy from the National Lampoon documentary. Yeah. So you were there with Mike Reese? Well, I got on with Mike Reese. Ah. So so that he, you have a group of people you get on with. I think there were four of us. Mm -hmm. And Mike is so funny. Like, I just even remember from back then, he used to do parodies of the Marx Brothers. And I hadn't even seen a Marx Brothers movie at that point. Because, you know, in the culture I grew up in, it was like, ooh, old movies. Who'd watch that? Ooh. Uh, you know? I need Eli Wallach. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Eli Wallach is another story. Yeah, of course, now that's... <laughs> by yeah. the way, I was the only person who watched <laughs> that movie and liked it that I could find. But <laughs> the, when I'm talking about my Eli Wallach, uh, The yeah. Tiger Makes Out. So Mike Reese, who then went on, I guess he was one of the creators of The Simpsons. He had such a knowledge of comedy. So you're around other people who teach you, really. And I learned from the people there. Plus, I think surviving that difficult comp process where you are severely criticized and you keep trying and you keep coming back with more. If anything, I think that is a valuable thing to learn, though painful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it is, again, it's like what makes people that excel in comedy, live comedy, is getting that thick skin where a bad audience no longer bothers you, <laughs> you know? So maybe it's getting over that 
personal sort of barbs and rejection again and again to the point where, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And and I think that something happens when you put a lot of people together who care about comedy. Do, though I, I want to say that there was a lot of procrastinating when it came to com- contributing to the magazine. And there was a lot of craziness that maybe didn't have, wasn't productive from a comedy standpoint, but there was also a ton of fun and and the really the privilege of being with these other people who were so smart and so funny and could teach you a lot i think that is what helps people go on what do you think harvard lampoon's place is in comedy history i don't think i'm qualified to say because i don't think i know enough about comedy history i all, all i can say is it certainly has produced a lot of tv writers <laughs> and movie writers so I guess those TV shows and movies had a lot of impact, but it's also produced a lot of other people who did other cool things. And I have friends who came out of the Lampoon. One of my closest friends from the Lampoon, Lee Beerson, is this incredibly talented illustrator. And he's just sharing his talents in a variety of different ways. He's not famous, but I love his work and I and he's a wonderful person and he's and he's funny all the time. And also, I just recently saw our friend Ann Hodgman, who I think is possibly one of the funniest people who ever lived. She writes children's books. She wrote one called How to Die of Embarrassment. And she also writes cookbooks. There, one was called Beat This. And <laughs> she, Great title. Yeah. Oh, she, <laughs> she just literally has to lift a finger and it's funny, you know? just the look in her face. I mean, there's just humor in her cells, kind of. And and it's the best kind of humor. It's it's gentle humor and it's it's forgiving, laughing at humanity humor. It's Don Quixote humor. That's it. <laughs> and so Ann Hodgman uh came out of there. She's she's been very successful at what she's done, but she that she didn't She's not a Simpsons writer, but she has contributed a huge amount to comedy as, as you know, as much as anybody could. Because I'm a guy who takes the time to research these things, uh, which involves reading the Wikipedia page. Uh, Fred Gwynn Herman Munster was an illustrator for the Harvard Lampoon. He was, yes. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you, life is full of surprises from the Lampoon to the Munsters, but... That just is another example of how, you know, that's an example of a famous person, but a, a lot of people from the Lampoon have have gone on to other sorts of things and spread their comedy in different ways. And were you there at the same time as Conan O'Brien? I was there before he was there, but because his college roommate is a very close friend of mine, I got to meet him and really enjoyed him. It, it was a little before he was quite as famous as he became. I do remember going to his apartment and his shoes were at the front door, you know, the way people leave their shoes at the front door. And and it looked, I could put two, I could put both my feet into one of his shoes. You know, we are like, it's hard to believe that we communicated at all because he's so much taller <laughs> that to even have the, the sound travel that far is is a miracle in itself. And, and and this was in his apartment in uh, Boston or in, in New, New York? York. Oh, New right. York. Okay, yeah. gotcha. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. 
And just lastly, any other takeaways about the whole experience of being on the staff at the Harvard Lampoon? Well, one thing is that it started as a men's club, but really funny women have come out of there. I mean, really funny. Patty Marks, who has, she, I think she wrote for Saturday Night Live. When I was there, I was friends with this woman, Pam Norris, who wrote for the show Designing Women. Uh, and for other shows, she was so funny and unconventional and kooky in a in a wonderful way. There was a woman named Jackie Oshiro, who, again, I think she's gone on to other things with her life, but that is one funny person. <laughs> I mean, she she really was funny when I knew her in college. And it, and it goes on and on. So I think that the fact that the Lampoon is supporting funny women is a is a great thing. And I don't think it's always known for that. It's certainly when I was there was more men than women, but the women who were on it were really funny. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. I read that, that it wasn't until 1972 that yeah. uh, women were allowed on the staff. And then, it, you know, again, you look at the history of, say, National Lampoon, which was sort of a boys club in early Saturday Night Live. And I only say this because I've been brought on as a researcher for a documentary on Ann Beats, who has the Lampoon right. connection because yes. she was National Lampoon. But, uh, you know, the first woman writer on National Lampoon and one of the first hires, women hires ever on Saturday Night Live. And so, you know, again, if you look at history trajectory of comedy, you know, sorry, you have like, you know, kind of a men's club and then, you know, slowly women filtered in, you know, but, you know, it started as that National Lampoon and SNL just kind of like those writers rooms were always kind of notoriously kind of like a boys club. And it took like an ambience to kind of break through the glass ceiling or floor. I don't know. There's glass involved and there's breaking. That's all I know. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I don't know what it's it's like now, but I do know that some really wonderful women have come through there. And the, the other thing I would say about the Lampoon, the most important thing that can often get forgotten because there's a lot of other stuff going on, too, is it's just laughter. Like my friend Tom Gamble. I met when he was on the Lampoon and I, I got on later, probably with his help. He used to make me laugh so hard that I just I just couldn't breathe in the best way. The, you know, the kind of suffocation that is enjoyable. And he is so funny and we still laugh together about things. And that's that's the best thing about the Lampoon. He, he was... Uh, I don't know all the titles, but he was sort of like president or vice president. He and Max Pross were together sort of running the Lampoon for a year. But the key thing is they're both really funny. Yeah, that's what I love about any comedy situation is, well, I like the performing, yes. But I like when you're in the green room and you're with like you're just a group of just people that can make you laugh really hard behind the scenes. And the audience doesn't even know this laughter and it could apply to the lampoon uh, while you're writing it, just the laughter and just that takes place behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. And, and comedy is also a business. It's made a lot of people a lot of money. And that's it's I'm glad people have supported themselves that way. But when it gets too much of a business, some of the laughter can go away. And, and you know, a lot of times they say, don't they say that a lot of comedians aren't really funny when they get off the stage or there's some 
saying about that? I'll quote Dana Carvey on Lauren Michaels. And they always bring up this quote of Lauren Michaels. Uh, uh, and I'll do this as me impersonating Lauren Michaels. <laughs> uh, funny, funny people, there's only 900 of us in the world. <laughs> there's only 900 of us. <laughs> well, well, I mean, there's they're... people I've seen, you know, they could try really hard and they put in the homework and they could come yeah. through. But it's just like these people, you know, again, like you're talking about your friends are just just naturally funny people that could just make you laugh in situations that aren't outside the world of comedy and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so those those people really are have been a, a pleasure to know and I met them through the lampoon and that wraps up our episode today on the history of the Harvard lampoon you can check out more of Michael on his podcast I couldn't throw that out and also remember take some time to like subscribe and comment on comedy history 101 we will read your comments on the air and until next time bye bye Comedy History 101.